And so he called for the SR major saying, hey, SR major, get Doc here a jump refresher. And so 10 minutes later, I'm in the little wooden deck behind headquarters doing PLFs, jumping off the deck. And that night, I was jumping into the night sky with a thousand of my closest friends sitting next to young Colonel David Petraeus. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Army Colonel and current physician to the President of the United States, Dr. Kevin O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor shares some amazing stories from a very distinguished career, which includes his time as Command Surgeon for the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, as well as a deployment with the 3rd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Kevin describes how he wound up working at the White House, initially as a physician to the Vice President, and how, after retiring, he came back to the White House as physician to the President. Dr. O'Connor shares some important insights and lessons learned about delivering executive medicine in the military and civilian sector, as well as in the executive branch of the federal government, and provides excellent advice for those interested in pursuing a similar career. Find out more about Dr. O'Connor and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Colonel Dr. Kevin O'Connor to Wardocs. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Dr. O'Connor, tell us a little bit about your decision and pathway to join military medicine. Well, in number one, it was a great way to pay for school. A lot of us end up in the military starting out that way. It's a, it's a reasonable way. It's an honorable way. And I think it's a smart way. But I, I think I was kind of inoculated into the, the military bug when I was a little kid, my dad, yeah, he had been enlisted in the Navy for a couple of years at high school and then became a cop in the civilian world. But I remember he used to always bring me up the Hudson. I, li- I grew up in New Jersey and there's all kinds of pictures of him, like sent me on cannons at West Point. And I, I did not end up going to the academy, but I remember him talking about the army and the Navy and how that's a great honorable lifestyle. And then when I got to college, I went to St. Bonaventure really tiny school, upstate New York, a little Franciscan school, told me a lot more about, about life. Uh, so I was really blessed to have chosen that. But they only had one ROTC program, the Army. It was great. Did the ROTC and uh, just did it as a, a class, really. Uh, kind of like in high school, you take gym for a your relatively easy A and something that's fun to do. I took ROTC like that. I just figured, hey, that'd be kind of cool. I saw cadets repelling down fire towers. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And, and then one day the PMS said, Hey, why don't you guys fill out these applications for scholarships? I did it because I was told to do it. I had no intention of being accepted to get one. I had long hair. I was a high school wrestler. It ends up, they, they offered me a three year RTC scholarships and I, I didn't see that coming. I'd never really thought about it. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And they said, well, you, you got to cut your hair. I can do that. I mean, you got to give us years back. And in my mind, I was thinking like in Popeye terms, uh, hey, I'll, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. They're, they're paying me in advance. So, so yeah, life either owe time or you owe money and I didn't have a whole lot of money. And so I did that. And then when you accepted to medical school, they encouraged you, hey, why don't you apply for that HPSP, that Health Profession Scholarship Program? 
And so I already have four years, you might as well make it eight. And I was accepted and I take care of paying for medical school, which is great. And, and then I actually did a civilian residency and I did that, a third program, FAP, the financial assistance plan. And that was another four year commitment stipend addition to my salary. I came in as a 03 under two owing 12 and ended up staying for 22. Okay, so now you're an indentured servant to the the military and you've completed civilian residency. How did you go about choosing family medicine as what you wanted to specialize in? I think that people don't so much choose who specialty as who specialty chooses them. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Uh, so I, I kind of liked everything, but I didn't like any one thing so much that I was willing to give up the rest, if that makes sense. And the other thing is I just kind of looked around and, and figured out who seems happy? And I took that as positive predictive value that maybe I might be happy. And, and family docs just seemed the most comfortable in their own skin. They got a little bit of everything. They didn't have fragile egos that they had to be the expert. They could always phone a friend and that seemed compatible with the way I try to live my life. So you then spent eight years at Fort Bragg in a period both before and after 9-11. Let's start with the before 9-11 time. Tell us about your assignments at Fort Bragg when you first left residency, when you were working with the troop medical clinics and at Womack Medical's Army Medical Center. Did you feel prepared for what was expected of a medical corps officer? Yeah, yes and no. Yeah, and I'll explain that. First off, I, I selected Bragg and it wasn't, everyone was not trying to go there, but I, I was definitely trying to go there. I was raised in ROTC by special operators and rangers and paratroopers. And so I was pretty much told when I was growing up as a cadet that there was Fort Bragg and then there was everything else, that Fort Bragg was the center of the universe. And so my, my only aspiration is that I wanted to be a paratrooper. And, and I had gone to airborne school as a cadet in 1986. And I figure the first step of anything is you, you got to be there to care. And so my first step was get to Fort Bragg. And the, the first job was the best first job you could possibly have. It was in TMC 21, Coscom True Medical Clinic, taking care of the enablers that support the, the vision and the core. It was awesome because this was a picture of a, a World War II barracks with peeling paint, probably leaded, I have no idea, no sinks in the exam rooms, a single bathroom on each floor. And it would start maybe seven in the morning with a sick call. And there would be 70 to 100 young bubbas. Yeah, and if there were 70, you figure 68 of them were not particularly that hurt. And two of them might have cancer or be having a heart attack or something like that. And so as as new guy at residency, it was phenomenal pathology and you got your speed up and, and it sucked, which any first job should suck. That's the bet that you always can refer back to that. They're like, oh, it's not bad. And so uh, it was a great first job there and I made great friends. So I went there and it's the first year and I was engaged at the time, but my wife, Chris, she was up in New Jersey. We were going to be engaged for a year, but we're, she's going to stay with her parents until we got married. You know, and so I was a geographic bachelor, an actual bachelor too, but a geographic. And, and so what happened is I was killing time one night and, and I discovered this thing at, at Bragg. They probably have them other places too, but I went to a boxing smoker. I don't know if you've, you've lived that, that glorious part of military life, but a boxing smoker was phenomenal. They take a couple paratroopers with or without any particular skill or training. And they, they put gloves on them and they put them in a ring and have at it. Just glorious 
pugilism, warrior ethos. It, it was phenomenal. I'm sure there's a million reasons it was wrong, but it was right. It, it was great. And so I was watching that one night and I look over and I see this, what seemed to be a young guy, you know, a ring doctor. And so I figured, I'm, yeah, let me introduce myself. And I went over and, and it was young Alan Janishevitz. I went over to him and he's wearing a PT uniform, the old army, the gray one, the most comfortable one we ever had. Yeah, all cotton. And so I go over there and I'm just talking to him. And I said, hey, you're a ring doctor? And he said, yeah, yeah, that's great. And I'm like, well, hey, if you need help, just let me know. And we got to know each other a little. And uh, he says, so what brings you here? I said, well, I, I, I want to be a paratrooper. I just, I'm not sure how to make that happen, but I know I had to be here. And he said, well, you should probably talk to the division surgeon. And I said, the division the division surgeon of the 82nd Airborne Division? Like, how, how am I going to get an audience? with the division surgeon of the 82nd Airplane Club. And he just looked at me and explained, you're talking to him. So I'm now slowly coming to you know, parade rest. And he's like, no, 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 you're, talk you're talking, just keep talking. And so he gave me that night the single most important guidance that I've ever received. And I've passed it on to you easily a thousand people and, I, and only, always with attribution. He said, Kev, here, here's the deal. If you learn nothing else in the military, yeah, I was a young captain. He said, this is the one thing that you should write in your brain. Express the interest. Okay, just express the interest. You got to let somebody know what you want to do. Because certainly good leaders, but even mediocre leaders, I mean, it's human nature that we want to help one another. It makes you feel good to be able to help a younger person out. And so... He said, look, if, if I don't know what you want to do, how am I going to help you get there? And so if you're telling me you want to be a paratrooper, then, hey, I will assign you to my old profis unit. And then he explained to me what a profis unit was, a professional officer filler system for doctors and lawyers and billets that at the time, brigade level didn't have. Now they do have board certified docs, but back then they didn't. They had general medical officers. And he said, what, what will happen is I'll give you my old profis assignment. 2504 parachute infantry regiment. And so I'm thinking, hey, that, that's great. And sure enough, I went into work the next day. We still didn't have email. This is 1995, but I had a cubby, you know, and I go to my cubby and there's this rolled up piece of paper and printed orders. You are, your profess assignment is 2504 parachute re uh, infantry regiment. And so uh, I just was elated. And so I remember I, I, Got myself together, shined my boots back when I had boots that you had to shine. And I went over and onto Arden Street and I introduced myself to the battalion commander and the brigade commander. And so the brigade commander, a young Colonel David Petraeus, he looked at me. He's like, So wait, you're what? You're a profess? I said, Yeah. And I explained to him, profess. And he called his S1. He's like, Do we have a profess doc? And then the S1 re explained what that was. And he's like, Well, why are you introducing yourself? I said, well, I want to train with you, sir. Before the balloon goes up, I'm with you guys, and I don't want to meet you for the first time then. I want to train with you. And he couldn't believe this young doc from the hospital full of piss and vinegar was, was standing in front of him. And they said, well, have you been to airborne school? And I very proudly replied, yeah, 1986. Yes, sir, I have been. And, and so he called for the SR major, saying, hey, SR major, get doc here, a jump refresher. And so 10 minutes later, I'm in the little wooden deck behind headquarters doing PLFs, jumping off the deck and thumbs up. And that night I was jumping into the night sky with a thousand of my closest friends sitting next to young Colonel David Petraeus. What a, what a break.
And now I will tell you at the time, the hospital, and I, I'm not positive that medic mentality has changed, but I used to actually have to take a leave to go on an FTX to go to the field with my unit because the hospital didn't get it. They thought that was do that on your own time. That, that part was disappointing. Hopefully has changed a little bit since the war, but TBD. Yeah, that, that's, that definitely has changed. So tell us your 9-11 story as you were the command surgeon for the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment, Delta. Yeah, I ended up, I was over the unit at the time. It started as a deputy surgeon and then fell into the command surgeon spot. And I, I do remember 9-11. It, it was probably the, you know, probably the quietest day that we had ever had on a compound because everyone was going about their business in the morning. And you see this, the news was on the monitors around the compound. Similar to most people's memory, just, boy, that's weird. How would you fly into a tower? That's, you know, that's really just with odd. And we thought maybe it's a small plane and just the, the fog of war type news. And much like everyone, when that second plane hit, light bulb went off and then they were like, oh, oh man. Yeah. And naturally, I mean, not that the unit was egocentric, but we kind of assume if this is an integrated assault, we're on the target list. And so they start manning battle stations, putting vehicles on the gates, heavy guns on the gates, on the roof. Basically, we, we thought we might be under attack too. And then the communicators, the medics, the E-Squadron, we just slowly and, and not silently, but pretty quietly and at a very deliberate pace, just started loading magazines and pulling kits. We used to have kit for different type scenarios of low vis, desert, Arctic, jungle. It, it, we didn't know what to pull. And so I remember we were just like tweaking our aid bags and, and load magazines, assuming that we were going to, I mean, we had the immediate response, responsibility for the nation. And so we, we assumed somebody is going to send us somewhere today. And we didn't know who needed to kill him. We didn't have a target at the time. As you recall, it took several weeks to figure it out. And so we, I remember everyone was in the chow hall and we're watching the news and eating lunch. And I, and I can remember really it's one of the most humbling and one of the most proud moments just to be in the company of people like that, that I remember watching, they had a big screen TV and, and after first couple hours, the kind of the ugliness of, of people came out, you go after the other and now we'd be attacked. We, we need an enemy that I get all that. And I remember getting these people on the street and they were really angry, which of course, and I want them to be, but the sentiment is somebody needs to take these people and drag them out of their caves and kill them. And I, and I remember just sitting there thinking, wow, what a difference between somebody ought to go and drag these people out of their caves, and kill them to we're going to go and drag bad, bad guys and, and we're going to kill them. And, and just the, the somebody versus we're going to. And because everyone in the military, when the, the towers were hit, everyone realized like, wow. And then the normal human reaction is like, I, I wonder if I'm going to deploy. Well, at the unit, we didn't wonder if we're going to deploy. We are wondering where are we going to go and where are we going to hit first? And it took a while to declare that. Yeah, but I, I do remember very vividly all the people talking about what somebody should do. So tell us a little bit about that, that first deployment that, uh, that you went on with the unit. 
Uh, so I'll be real careful and not to go into anything specific because I have no idea what's been declassified, what hasn't. I know what has been multiple books about it, but I don't know if they were legit cleared. So I'll be careful. But we we did deploy several weeks later and uh, we're going to go in, into Afghanistan. And you know, the one thing I, I feel free to talk about is uh, we were in a, a forward position and uh, it was kind of before the, the major land forces started. We were doing preparatory operations. And one of the funnier things I remember is a picture. We've got operators and rangers and really A-list kind of warriors. And we're in this spot and the, the talk, they do the brief. JSOC was doing their brief and they have all their enablers. And you've been through those briefs. They're, they're very detailed, very long rock drills and all that stuff. And everyone's doing their piece. The weather guys doing their piece, the comms guys, everyone. And then that night they went and they were doing a, a small preparatory hit and we were task organized with some nice stalkers in our task force and, and they're flying around doing great warrior things. And then all of a sudden the, the net just lights up. We're taking fire, two o'clock for the Americans. And then all this overlapping radio speak of all this fire, they're taking off in the same direction. And uh, they're, we're, we're conducting evasive maneuvers. And so we're just listening to this at the talk, like, well, what is going on? We really didn't, our intel didn't have much of an opposing force where we thought we're going. And, uh, and then the, the poor little weather guy comes up in the, in the talk and, or the, the jock and, and he's like, you do recall, I mentioned the Leonite meteor showers this evening. <laughs> oh man. And so we go out and we put our nods up and, and sure enough, if you were flying under nods, invading another person's country. We can see how, yeah, yeah, you would think this looks like incoming hellacious fire, but it was a, it was a meteor shower. So always listen to the weather guy. You also deployed to Iraq in the early stages of OIF. How are the two theaters different and similar? Going into in Iraq, I think we were a lot more, not that we weren't afraid going in the first time, but we were much more afraid of Ken Bio stuff. We, we were very convinced that we were going to get slotted. And uh, my medics used to kind of you know, jab me a little bit because in between the, the two deployments, I kept referring to, hey, we, we've got to be ready for quote unquote day one because Iraq you know, seemed like it was going to be much fiercer and much more ruthless bio response. Did you have any interesting clinical cases on either of those two deployments? Certainly trauma. I was very proud that the clinical case we did not have in Afghanistan that my deputy Helwig and I were very proud that we didn't have, I don't think, a single case of diarrhea. And I give the credit for that to, to Colonel Harrell. He was a very big fan of Purell. Purell was a new product. And we deployed and we had every operator carrying this stuff. And we had a lot of resupply. And we said, hey, look, the only way you get diarrhea is by eating poop. All right? Don't eat poop. Wash your hands when you can. And when you can, use this stuff. And we made an impression that from a public health standpoint and a deployed environment, we were, we were very proud of the fact that we didn't have any preventable diarrhea. So you had a lot of initial experience with operators, tier one units, rangers, special forces, and then you moved into the White House. How did that happen? I've had a very humbling career, but I, I'm the forest gump of military medicine. I've, I've surrounded with people so much better than me. At what they do, both medical and, and tactical. But by doing so, I ended up getting pretty good too. 
And so how it happened was by accident. I wanted the hard, hard assignments and I wanted the, the challenges. And so the White House ended up being very much an accident. I was at the unit, went to Command General Staff College, and then from there I went to Fort Carson to be a, a chair of family medicine. So back into the, the MEDAC, a TDA assignment, I, I much preferred to any assignments. I had a wonderful team, phenomenal team. I just hated the job. Yeah, I just done an administrator. I need and I value administrators, but uh, that's not my cup of tea. But that was the job. And so I got good at it and we pulled in some good numbers, the stuff that administrators do. But while I was there, I got a call from a friend of mine, Dan Parks. He was one of the White House physicians. The way it works is generally there's one, what we call P2P, the physician to the president, uh, one P2VP, the physician to the vice president. And, and the other White House physicians are kind of plug and play. Dan was one of the plug and play to cover nights and weekends and trips and all the stuff that, that one person would not want to and, and could not do. We, we have a very strong team and we were really heavily on one another, really as equals. And Dan was one of those White House physicians and he called and said, hey, we're, we're coming to Denver on Monday. And I was hoping that you still do that back stuff. See, I'm an osteopath, I'm a DO, and I got kind of known for doing that in, in the special operations community, certainly, and at Fort Bragg. And he said, hey, do you still do that back stuff? And, and I said, yeah, Dan, I, I still practice the black arts. Yeah, I, I still heal with violence. And so he said, well, yeah, would you be able to see a patient for us? And I'm like, no, absolutely. And so I really, I went up to Denver that Monday, mostly looking forward to having a beer with my friend Dan. And I figured he had some secret service guy or something like that. And when I got up there, the, the patient he had in mind was President Bush. And so I, I went in, yeah, President, how are you? Um, get on the table. And I, I just went right to work. I figured he has people blowing smoke at him all day. I wouldn't get to do that. And so I, I beat him up pretty, pretty good. And I, I, I don't worry about HIPAA as much as I might because the, the president was actually very vocal about our, our assessancy. Yeah, in fact, he ended up, originally he started calling me bone crusher. He was very into nicknames, and so I was Bone Crusher. And then, and then over the course of time, that morphed into Bone Cracker. Yeah, so I was, I was Bone Cracker. And then over time, that actually morphed into Cracker, which was unfortunate because that, that doesn't sound good. I remember uh, being in the, uh, in the elevator one day, actually, after I joined the team full-time, and I'm standing there, Dr. Dr. Rice, she was National Security Advisor at the time, and when the president comes in, Condi, Cracker, and I'm looking at her, I'm like, is he even aware that that is a racial thing? And we just smiled, but he just, he enjoyed it. And then the next time they were in Denver, they called me and said, hey, would you, would you mind coming up and seeing him again? So I, so I did the second time. And then the uh, third time around, went up a third time and they said, hey, maybe, maybe you want to interview to maybe roll this full time. And, uh, and so I interviewed with a couple of really talented folks that, that I know, friends of mine from USAFB and I am, I, Offered the rose. There I was as a White House physician, totally by accident. Now, does that turn over with the new administration or do, who makes the call of who becomes the physician to the president and vice president? The way it worked at the time is, I mean, it's always a military spot. It's always been a military spot. I think the last time there was a civilian in the position was with H.W. Bush, President Bush, 40 some years ago. But it's usually just a, the members of the White House military unit are here and it, people kind of fall into place that the senior guy kind of falls into the place of physician of the president. Obviously, the new president can change that, but that's 
who's sitting there waiting for him. And then the second most senior tends to be physician to vice president. If there's another senior guy, they're the director. And so it had kind of always been that way. And it kind of had always been that the outgoing physician of the president kind of selected the incoming. And I think that that is, is a flawed system because even in the, the most well-intentioned way, that's just, you, you kind of select out people that are pleasing you. And you can imagine what would happen if you weren't well-intentioned. So I just think as a system, that is a flawed system. So I, when I came back, the first thing I said is, hey guys, look, I'm telling you day one, I'm going to have nothing to do with the selection of the next P2P. Yeah, I, I believe, and this is just me, the president should select who they want and recommend that for the next president too. I just think it's a better system. I think each service should put two nominations forward and the president and their family should have a say in that. But that's just, that's just Kevin O'Connor. But how I end up doing it is I kind of fell into the P2VP spot because I, I was here for two and a half years of President Bush and Vice President Cheney. And then this new administration was coming in, President Obama, Vice President Biden. And we're apolitical. It doesn't matter to us, you know, just like the military aid and Air Force One and Marine One, the Secret Service. We just peaceful transition of power. We look at the person and then one guy takes the oath and then the military aid with the nuclear football just does a 45 degree turn and there we go. That's how it's always happened into the last time. And that's the way we want it to keep happening in the future. We're apolitical. And uh, yeah, now the way I, I say that to you as a political appointee, I'll get to that part. So when I was on active duty and finished with two and a half years of President Bush and Vice President Cheney, not as their P2P or P2VP, but as one of the more generic you know, White House physicians, I think I probably covered President Bush two thirds of the time, Vice President Cheney a third of the time, but I was never their primary care doc. I, I wouldn't give a Motrin to President Bush without first checking with his doctor. It's very deferential. And so the new administration came in, they said, hey, we would like to take care of Vice President Biden. And I said, sure, I can, I can do anything for six months. It's a three-year tour. I, truthfully, I did not love the job. I, I wanted to get back into soft world somewhere. I, or, or even 82nd, I was still a lieutenant colonel. That yeah, job was still possible. I just, I miss soldiers. And so I was looking forward to leaving. And what happened is in the first month or so, Vice President Biden's mom fell on broke her hip. And I ended up being very involved in that. And then that transitioned actually to end of life planning. And um, he asked me if I could stay. And, and honestly, it was more of a personal loyalty that I, I saw this man and he had been a senator for 36 years, which is pretty much like being a king. I mean, you have total autonomy. And then and here he has a boss for the first time in his adult life because he was elected a senator as a 29-year-old man. And, and oh, by the way, his boss is somebody that he is a mentor to. And so it was this, this real odd grace that I was getting to witness. And, and his mom's dying. And, and so I said, sure, sure, I'll, I'll finish the term with you. And then he went and got reelected. And so at that point, I was, I was all in until I still wasn't political. I was pretty happy before. And the good thing about these jobs is you, you don't have to like the person you're protecting. It's a lot more fun if you do. So I recommend that you try to, no matter who it is. But certainly we don't have to be on board with policies or any of that. Find some that you like, some that you don't, and that's not our piece of the pie. Now, when I retired, so I ended up, it, it took me 11 and a half years 
to finish my three-year term. And that's how bad I was at it. And I was like fifth grade, I just kind of kept getting left back. And, uh, but I finally did retire when he finished to be a vice president. He retired from public service. I retired from the army. I had plans. I went to GW and the things were working out. But then he, when he ended up coming back in office, he, he asked, hey, and, and I had still been his doctor, even at, as a civilian, I was still his doctor at GW. It's just that he, he got a bill and he drove himself. So that was a little weird. So let's explore that. You were the founding director of the Center for Executive Medicine at George Washington University. Tell us about that program and what is unique about executive medicine? The, the paradox of executive medicine is, doctor, your patient will see you now. And uh, you see what I did there? Because usually it's, everything's built around the physician. Executive medicine is the opposite of that. Now, what I will tell you is good executive medicine, not all executive medicine, but good executive medicine doesn't change the medicine part. Yeah, when you start doing the medicine part differently, that is wrought with peril. I don't do that. I hope people around me don't do that. Now, what will very much be different is if an executive, I won't keep it here, but an executive, say it's your brigade commander, calls you and has a complaint, you, you would be well served to go to that person's office with your kid and evaluate them. And now if you get to a point where like, I really think you need labs, I really think next day, stand up and, and make sure that happen. But certainly the courtesies are not toward the doctor. The way I present it is you know, always present yourself as the lesser. And I do that in, in medicine. You should do that because especially in conventional units, you, you as you get older, you, you get rank. And, and so, yeah, there's, you want to be seen as a colonel. You don't want to Jim Zarnick has a, a, a good kind of mini talk he gives on this that pet peeve of his, and I share it, is, is docs in the military that, that just let themselves be doc and they don't carry themselves as officers. That does us all a disservice. And I agree with, with Jim on that. But I do think there needs to be, you shouldn't be a scary officer. And I, I don't think he feels that way either. But you, know, you have to have military bearing and remind people that you're all part of this system that we call the military. Yeah, but I, I always presented myself as the lesser, that people will talk to you a little bit more candidly that way. And then if you need to recalibrate, you, you certainly can. And it can be subtle. You just address them by the rank and that snaps them back into, into reality. Yeah, but if you present yourself as a lesser, you're, you're less threatening. So one of the things that being a physician in the White House, especially to the president or vice president, involves a lot of travel all over the globe. And some of the places that you go... Maybe third world countries don't have robust medical facilities, don't have a United States medical presence there or a federal presence there. How do you prepare for those contingencies and, and what do you do for all the what ifs? Uh, first off, you, you got to be a pessimist. If you ever get an optimistic doctor, you, you should get a different doctor. You want a pessimist. But in what, what we call executive protective medicine, you really want to be a pessimist. You, you try to imagine the most horrible things and you, you try to mitigate those risks. You're never going to eliminate them. Yeah, but you mitigate them. And so what we aspire to do is to make sure that, that the president, the vice president, that they have world-class medical care 24-7, 365, anywhere in the world. And we can make up a bunch of that. I've got an unbelievably talented team. During the peak of COVID, I think we had 90 folks here because we got... 56 to 60 full-time WAMU, White House Medical Unit folks, 
And then we had up to 30 borrowed military manpower just for COVID testing and that, and that sort of thing. For surveillance, we now we're augmented a, a couple of CDC epidemiologists. And so uh, we're, we're very well resourced, but of those who much is given, much is expected. And so the way we do it is if the president's gone on a trip, whether it's to Milwaukee or third world, as you, as you mentioned, we're going to send advanced teams. We'll send a two, three, sometimes four men, a woman, advanced team in advance. And they will be PAs, docs, corpsmen, administrators, logisticians sometimes. And we don't have to figure anything out at the time. We know every step that the president's going to take. So we say president wakes up in this bed at this hotel and put his feet on the ground. Okay, here's to the shower. Here's his first move into the elevator, now down to the second floor. We're going to this room for photos with police and fire. And then we're getting in the motorcade, and then we're going to this LZ, and then we take the helicopter from here to there. And so we know every movement that he's going to make or he or she's going to make. And so what we do is the advanced team's job is to say, all right, something boom, something bad happens right here. Where are we going to go? All right, how are we going to get there? Are we going to drive? Are we going to fly? What if that's part of the problem? Where else could we go? What about overseas where they have different hospitals for polydrama versus neuro versus cardiac? Okay, well, he's got both things going on. And, and so we are constantly thinking, all right, where can we go? And then we will physically, our team will go to those places and we're going to come in this ramp, going to go to this trauma bay or this cardiac room and then take this elevator to the to CT, Angio, cath lab, wherever, and then going to recover in this area. We're going to have this room in the ICU, press over here. We are leaving nothing unplanned. So that's, it's just a lot out of due diligence. And all of these are plans we hope we never execute. Part of your question is when we go to austere locations where perhaps they, they don't have what we would consider world-class care. The way I always put it to the advanced officers is if you're in an operating room on the advance and you can't picture yourself like this in front of Congress saying, yeah, it was my idea to put the president on that table. Yeah, that one there with the cat in the corner and the you know, bat hanging out of the corner. If you don't feel comfortable with that, then we're not going to do that. But we're ambassadors. We don't want to ever insult the host nation. They're offering what they've got and what their head of state would be getting. And so you don't want to be the, the, the haves that are looking down on the have-nots. They're offering what they have. But if what they have is not going to meet our standard, then what we will do is typically we'll quietly augment that with DOD assets because you, you got to kind of widen your aperture that we have the entire Department of Defense at our disposal. And so if, if we're saying, well, I don't want to name any countries, but if we're in a country near coast and I, I don't like the trauma plan, what we'll do is we'll simply move a carrier group and we'll float an LHD off the coast right over the horizon. And that LHD, that's our trauma center. And then we have the air assets. And now we are going to tell the host nation there because we don't want to, number one, hop sec, and number two, we don't want to insult them, but we'll have a plan. And if we're not near a coast, we can set up a, an army surgical team in a hotel room, in a hangar. We get pretty creative if we have to. Well, so from a military medical aspect, you are the physician to the commander in chief. And many medical providers in the military will ultimately, particularly as they get later in their career, will end up doing executive medicine, at least in some capacity. What do you think are 
some areas of advice you would give to people who have to take care of, say, general officers or other people that come through the system? And what do you think are some underappreciated aspects of executive medicine that might help them deliver that care better? The biggest thing is obviously be respectful. Yeah, present yourself as the lesser. If you're doing real executive medicine, that's easy to do because you are the lesser. But always present yourself as the as a, a servant. If you have a servant's heart, that's what we used to talk about. That'll lead you to to good things. And uh, the biggest thing that I think senior leaders need is they need officers that are not afraid of them. Yeah, you've got to be able to take a punch if you're going to serve your patient well in executive medicine. You've got to be able to tell them what they don't want to hear because uh, they're all alphas. He or she did not become a general, an admiral, and senior executive because they wanted to go to the dock for every snivel. But if you need to tell them something, you need to make sure they hear it. And you're going to take some lumps doing that. But that's okay. That's okay because they'll respect that. And if they don't respect that, well, that's good too because then you get another job and maybe the next boss will respect. So uh, either way, don't. Don't compromise that. You owe it to the patient, you owe it to the profession, and you owe it to the other docs to shoot straight. We, we don't candy coat things in medicine. I mean, yeah, I, I remember when, yeah, I can, I can tell this story because he, he actually recounted it pretty accurately in his book. So there again, it's not a happy issue. But when, when the president was vice president, he, he had pneumonia once and it was pretty significant. I had him on three different antibiotics as an outpatient because... We can do things as an outpatient, but he was sick. And, and so I went in and we were supposed to do a, a trip down to Central America that was pretty important. But when, when is any presidential or vice president important? And so I went in to, to see him and I said, hey, sir, you, you really, you, you give me another 48 hours or so. You need to, to just rest and recover and let me do this the, the right way. You can you're, you're move the right direction, but not, you're not going to be ready for this trip. We got to pull this this country down. And of course, he was going to have none of that. And so, and as he describes in his book, I told Doc, hey, Doc, you don't get it. We, we've already spent a lot of money on this trip. It's embarrassing. We, and Doc cut him off. Well, sure, yeah, it's embarrassing. But you know what else is embarrassing? Passing out on camera. All right. Remember the, the, the famous footage of President H.W. Bush and when he got sick on the prime minister of Japan, it kind of put Norwalk virus on the map. That was before cell phone cameras and YouTube. And like that, that, if that's the way you want to go viral, then yeah, let's go. I said, but I don't recommend it. It's a terrible idea. And he got irritated and he's like, Doc, we're not pulling down the trip. And there again, by his discussion, I was very impressed that he actually got the direct quote right. I, I looked at him. I'm like, sir, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but you look like shit. All right. I cannot make you not look like shit. And he kicked me out of his office. So in his book, he recounts, so I kicked Doc out of my office. Five minutes later, Doc's back, now with my chief of staff, Steve Rochetti. And Steve's like, hey, sir, Doc says we really got to pull at least one of these companies down. We can do it later. Well, gosh darn it. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, I already told Doc, we're not pulling the damn trip down. Just both you, leave me alone, get the hell out of here. And he kicks us out of his office. And there again, per his book, Five minutes later, Doc returns with Steve and Jill. And so Dr. Biden said, Joe, don't be a stubborn old man. Doc has never steered you wrong. He's got your best interest at heart. If, you, if he says, you got to pull down the trip, you got to pull down the trip. That's, that's just don't be stubborn and tough guy. Just do what your doctor tells you. That's, that's the, always the right answer. 
And of course, he acquiesced and he said, okay, okay, that's great. That's great. And then the three of us start to walk out and, and then he's like, oh, doc, one more thing. I'm like, oh, yes, sir. And I come back and he just stares me down. He's like, that was so effed up. And I'm like, well, sorry, you forced my hand. That was the nuclear option. But he's like, no, you literally, you, you got my spouse against me. And I'm like, well, sir, you always love saying, oh, yeah, doc, Delta Force. I'm like, but sir, do you, you think in Delta Force, you think they taught me to fight fair? No, it's a fight. No, I'm not going to fight fair. I would do it again. And he's like, God, get out of here. I can't believe I should fire you. I don't know why I keep you around. And I'm like, no, I don't know, sir, either. But he's like, if you weren't so damn loyal, I'd fire you. And I'm like, I know. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple hours. He's like, okay, thanks, Doc. And, and we pulled the trip down. And yeah, we did it a couple months later. So just kind of a, a quick administrative question about as the role of White House physician actually to the president. When the president generically goes for a procedure and has to have some kind of sedation, anesthesia, who makes the call of whether or not you know that official chain of command has to be identified to say, hey, the president can't make a decision because of X, Y, and Z, and we're, we're going to put this protocol? Who makes that decision? Is that the physician? Yeah, the physician on duty has the, uh, has the authority. Every physician that's on duty is constantly, we, we know, I mean, the president walks by the office several times a day. And if we're, if we leave the 18 acres and we're on the road, there's a doc within minute, really seconds, 24 seven. And, and so no, the, the second that he cannot conduct the, uh, the responsibilities of all three roles, yeah, he's got, I got to be commander in chief, you got to be head of state and chief executive. There are his three roles. And if he is not in the capacity to do that, we have to transfer power. No, we don't serve the president. We serve the presidency. That is sacrosanct. We're, we're not here for a woman and not here for a man. We're here for the office. And, and even as a political appointee, that is my position. He knows that. He wants it that way. And so the second that we believe the, that there's a compromise of capacity, we immediately get the ball in motion. So I'm going to ask a question on behalf of my fellow active duty military medical members. What would be the process if someone listening said, I, I would like to be a part of the White House medical unit. What jobs are available to active duty members and how would they go about identifying those and being selected for one? Yeah, I would go back to the original advice that Colonel John Shevitz gave me, express the interest. Make sure that it's on your OER, that as that part of future jobs, express the interest. White House physician, White House nurse, White House administrator, or just service in the White House military office, White House medical unit. Just put it in there somewhere because the, the folks in personnel are going to see that. So expressing the interest is far and away the most important thing you can do. They express the interest to somebody might be doing it. That helps too. Just get a tickler file going. But as far as who is military, all of us are military. Right now, I am a civilian. I'm a retired military, but I'm a, uh, an assistant to the president. I commissioned directly to the presidency. Right now, I'm one of, I think, two civilians is myself. And we have one of our administrators is, is Grace. She's been here for some years and she's a civilian. But every other position in this unit is military. From all services and stripes, both NCOs and officers. 
So who does the White House Medical Unit, who do they take care of? Is it everybody that works in the White House, Secret Service, families? How does that work? Only military beneficiaries officially get care. It's an important distinction. And so if you're a secretarial designee, and so a secretarial designee is someone that the Secretary of the Navy has designated as a military beneficiary for health care. And so the, the president, vice president, and their immediate families are secretarial designees and cabinet secretaries and above. So either cabinet secretaries or what we call apps, uh, assistants to the president. That's cabinet level or above. So not their spouses or family, not their chiefs, cabinet secretary or an assistant president. They are secretarial designees and can receive their care through the White House medical unit and through Walter Reed. Can you give me a behind the scenes look, sort of what your average day or week is like as a physician to the president? Yeah, there's no average, as you would expect. But the typical day, if we're not traveling, because we, we travel a lot, the major part of the job is the travel. But assuming it's a day that we're not traveling, I, I see half facetiously, but not really. And the same goes for me and any of the other docs or nurses is the most important part of my day is good morning, Mr. President. Because the way it works is he comes down from, he lives upstairs. Yeah, my office, I didn't mention that, where it is, where the helicopter lands. That's the south lawn there. And then you got the, that room with the, the awning. That's the, the diplomatic reception room. And lead to the left of that is the map room. And then the next two windows is the, the physician's office. So location, location, location. But the president will come down the elevator in the morning. Yeah, we know he's coming because voices speak to us all the time and as well as her too. And so uh, anytime, obviously, the president and the first lady are going to be walking across, we all stand. One or two of us go to the front of the door and we make ourselves available. And uh, usually you just do you know, morning dock and maybe every other time I head gesture and I'll do a little 15-step conversation with them. I tried to break off before we get through the Palm Room, because once you're on the West Colonnade, they're taking pictures and stuff. But we'll just converse, and it's usually, hey, how, how was your weekend, how the girls, that kind of thing. Or if he's got a friend or a constituent or something that he wants to look into, a lot of patient advocacy. And uh, but by doing so, he literally has to pass the doctor's office every time he goes to and from the Oval. And so that's by design for a number of reasons. Number one is we are literally assessing every day. So people are like, well, how often is it? Well, think about it. You have a conversation. You're assessing their breathing, their mentation, their dentition, their, you're assessing their color. And so part of it is, is just for that exposure. And, uh, and more fundamentally is if we have offices over the Eisenhower building, that's where my office was when I was a White House doc and, and to the vice president. But if the president had to go to the Eisenhower building see the doc, you figure everywhere he goes, they're putting over the radio. And so if they don't hear, and, and so if he stops and says hi to us in the doc's office on the way to and from work, they mention, yeah, yeah, the president's doc's office. Nobody pays attention because he might be just getting a piece of candy. Like we're, he's here all the time for a second, then he's on his way. Whereas if they put over a radio, the president's going to the doctor's office and it's only once every, in a blue moon over in the other building. I mean, literally markets would be affected by that. You see what happens when he has a toothache. I mean, or, or if we go to Walter E. It, the reason it was so important that I, I not only brought the dentist, I brought the endodontist and the big microscope and all that over. I keep a, a dental operatory in the White House. 
is if I bring him to Walter Reed, even for a root canal, that I got to worry that now the press is saying, oh, it wasn't a root canal. He really got a kidney transplant. And then we got to worry about the, the, the press stuff. And, and, and that's just not, I, I like to just not deal with that more than, than I have to. I, I am very thorough and very honest and very forthcoming in writing every time he's been sick. Every day for 17 days of COVID, every physical issue is six-page detailed, more detailed report than any other president, but still they, they want more. And, and, and you figure that these written things that I have anticipated and answered every reasonable question. So tell me how the call schedule works. So you're, you're there during the day, but then you have this other team. How does the call work? Well, we always have somebody here. Somebody's always with the with president. Right, right now, he's out of town. I have a whole team. If he's outside of the 18 acres, we have a yeah, higher team with him. I talk about specifics, but more than a couple of people. And that's been the same for every president. Yeah, I've been here for three. So that's just how we do it. As far as the call schedule, it really depends on how many folks we have here and how many advances are going. Because if you look at it, it sounds like, hey, 60 people, that's a lot of people. And not really once you start eating it up, you, you figure we're doing all the advanced planning or and day-to-day coverage for the president, for the first lady, and the vice president. And so that starts eating up manpower pretty fast. And we've got a number of different places that we that are in too. And so for people that are aspiring to, to come here, I mean, it's not a fun three years. Like say, it should be a three-year tour. I say that as a guy who it took me 11 and a half years the first time around, and here I am back again. But that was not by design, and, and it would be a bad design. Before that, we had people who would extend and extend and extend. That's not good for the person. That's not good for the unit. It's not good for the services. I think the churn is, is the way the rest of the Army works. So why wouldn't we do that? And so I'm, I'm trying to undo some of those habits. The only time I think it's important not to churn is if it is for the continuity of care of the president or the vice president, if they want it. They may not always want it. They might say, yeah, three years, fine. Like, give me something else. But one of the drawbacks to military care is, is the churn of either the patient or the doctor. We don't get a lot of longitudinal care because either the doc or the patient gets transferred. And that's one of the only downsides to it. Otherwise, I think the quality care is infinitely better in the military. But certainly, if the president or the vice president desire annuity of care, they should get it. But not everyone in these 60 people is doing that. And so uh, we, we've done a good job in recent years of, of changing that and, and some freshness. So in your career, you've had the opportunity to rub shoulders with some amazing leaders from Fort Bragg, Fort Carson, deployments, the White House. What is a leadership principle that you know now that you wish you'd learned much earlier in your career? Well, first off, I didn't rub shoulders. You got to be equivalent to rubbing shoulders. I've served under, and I've basked in the wisdom and sagacity of of great leaders. But I, I caught a couple pearls along the way. And I don't know if it's a leadership principle, but the one nugget that I wish I knew when I was younger that I understand now that I'm older is if something that isn't fun is happening to you. I think we undervalue when we're young officers. We're looking at the zero defect profession and, and we believe it. And when in retrospect, we look at all the great leaders that we respect, but you're measured by your scars. So I think the, the ability to take a punch is probably what I value most in both senior and junior officers that, that I'm around. Because you, 
you can see how somebody functions. And, and I do a lot of promotions. And yeah, I think families are thrown off a little bit, but I always, at the end of it, I, I express that my wish for you as a new sergeant or major or lieutenant commander or whatever they get promoted to, my wish for you is adversity. And I think that the families are thrown off by that. But I, I do. I wish adversity because that's where you're going to define yourself. If you always have clear skies and following winds and just everyone likes you and all your decisions are popular, you will never know how you measure up. You need something bad to happen to let you know what kind of uh, an officer or NCO or man or woman they are. And so that would be the one part of it. And the second part is especially something that, that is unfair. That is demonstrably unfair. That, that's pro-life. That's going to happen. People aren't going to judge so much what happened to you, but yeah, how did you deal with it? Did you and cry like a baby and bitch and moan and that's not fair? Or did you just take your lumps and move out and keep doing a good job at whatever that next job is? And the part of that that I didn't understand as a younger officer that I, I am older is say you're E7 or O3 or O4, and you've got a, an O6, a captain or a colonel that is, that's just an ale and, and abusive and just does something terrible to you. The part that I didn't realize as a young officer that I do now that I'm long in the tooth is that the other O6s know that that guy's an ale. They know it. I mean, think about your own peers. We know it. And so, so those folks, those men and women are going to be looking at you and they're not surprised or even entertained by the fact that that person might have abused you, but they might be very interested in, in how do you handle it? And are, are you a strong person? And, and if you handle it well, they are going to proactively make sure you're just fine. And, and I've seen that play out a number of times, both myself and other people. That is, that is a truism. Ability to take your lumps, to stand by your principles, and just protect the name that your parents gave you. It's, it's more important. What would you want people to remember about your military and federal service medical career? My, my goal right now, this job is I hope nobody has any memory of me whatsoever. I would, I would love to live in anonymity. But yeah, as far as my, the people I care about, the people I served with, my, my family, my friends, just that I, I served with honor, that I, I didn't compromise, I didn't, I didn't self-promote. I think it's a requirement. Now, it's not an attribute that is optional. I, I think a good officer, a good NCO, you should have self-interest, but there's a big difference between self-interest. Self-interest is it's good. That is basic ambition and staying alive, that kind of thing. But self-interest is very, very different from self-promotion. Self-promotion kind of holds yourself up instead of your peers or your subordinates. And that's a high crime. I have no tolerance for that. And I think anyone who served with me yeah, so I, I think yeah, when I'm long dead and gone, just that I, I treated people around me with respect, with dignity, that I, I actually did care about them, and it wasn't just show. I actually helped them when I could. I encouraged them to express the interest. You know, and that you should mentor always. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin O'Connor on Wardock's podcast. Kevin, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Yeah, thanks very, very much. The hour is mine. It's, it's really fun. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts. 
and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.